Well, thanks. I appreciate it. And uh, great to be here in Dallas again. Hey, you know, we all have our idiosyncrasies, don't we? And uh, some of us have more than others. <laughs> One of mine is that I'm a second guesser, and I've always been that way. And it's something that has always frustrated my wife. And uh, she, she doesn't like to go shopping with me, you know, because I just, you know, I'll look at something. Oh, I get that. No, nah, maybe get that. Nah, nah. You know, I, I'm going to tell you a story. It's a true story, and it is truly embarrassing to me. So, you know, just like... Um, uh, Daryl and Dan and those guys were talking about the criterion of embarrassment. You know that I'm telling the truth because it doesn't help me at all. So um, this is a few years ago and uh, several years ago, and um, I was out of cologne. So I wanted to get some, and my wife said, well, here is a coupon. You can go down the street to Kohl's, and, you know, they got to say, oh, whatever, you can use that. So I go down there, and I'm, I, I, I get it down to these two that I want to get, one of them. And I go, mm, which one, which one? And after several minutes, I said, all right, I'll just get this one. So I got it, and I'm driving back home. It's about a 20-minute drive back home. And I got less than a mile from my home, and it had been bothering me the entire trip back. And it just got the best of me. And less than a mile of home, I did a U-turn, boom, went back, exchanged it for the other one, came back. I think I wore it twice and never again. Um, but it, you, you can imagine that if, if I am that kind of insane about just a, a silly bottle of cologne, um, how much more am I going to be so with something really, really important like my worldview? Um, you know, if I buy, make a wrong choice on something as silly as a bottle of cologne, what do I lose? 40 bucks? But if I make a bad decision regarding my worldview, it could cost me eternity. So this is something that, you know, just has kind of uh, put me in a state since, I don't know what, you know, years ago, where I'm always second-guessing. And it's not just, uh, you know, I do second-guess my faith. I second-guess everything in my life. I've been married for 15 wonderful years, which isn't bad out of a total of 28. Um, (laughs) So, but I have second-guessed whether I married the right woman. And it's not because of anything on her part. It's because, I mean, she's a wonderful woman. It's just me, you know, it's just, well, did I, did I marry the right person? Could I have, if I'd waited longer, would I have found someone better? All this kind of stuff. It's just crazy. You know, how many of you know what I'm talking about? You know, and some of you are going, well, um, let's see. Uh, <laughs> so when it comes to Christianity, I, I figured this is something that's really important. My worldview is really important. I want to get this right, and I want to get it right the first time. Um, because if, if Christianity isn't true, I might only have this one time. Like if Islam or Judaism is true, I only have this one time to get it right. Now, if Hinduism or Buddhism is correct, there's reincarnation, so I might have many opportunities to get this thing right. But if, if Islam or Judaism is right, or maybe some kind of unspecified form of theism where God exists and he, you know, whatever, you know, I want to, I wanted to seek truth and go wherever it leads me. Um, so this is something I really wrestled with. Um, I ended up getting into the PhD program and making the resurrection my, my topic for study. Because I wanted to seek after this in as objectively a manner as, as possible um, and, and, and just be fair to myself. So everybody has their own biases, and I had mine, and I have my own biases, um, and all of us do. 
Um, every last one of us have our own biases. So how do we overcome them? Can we overcome them? Is an objective historical investigation even possible? Um, so anyway, I, cert- I looked at this. I was really obsessed with this. Um, I can remember starting out on the study, and I remember going out one night and praying and saying, God, you know, I really got to resolve this for myself. I'm tired of doubting. Um, I, I want to approach this with the greatest amount of integrity that, that I can muster up. Maybe someone can have more integrity and the honesty in their, in their research, but I wanted to do it for me, to come to a conclusion, to say, is it, can the resurrection of Jesus, could it really be proven um, if we were going to look at things historically? And what does it mean to be proven? Now, I want to be honest with you. You know, I, I think historical investigation suits me fine, and here's why. When you look, do historical investigation, whether you're looking, as uh, Dan Wallace was talking about, the life of Alexander the Great, or whether you're looking at the life of Julius Caesar, or whatever, when you're going back that far in antiquity, doesn't matter who you're looking at, we can only know things with different degrees of certainty. There is no such thing as absolute certainty. We cannot get into a time machine, return to the past, and verify our conclusions. So what we do as historians, we look at the data that has survived, all right? We look at what has survived, and we put that together into various hypotheses that try to explain that data, and the data that, be- or I'm sorry, the hypothesis that best explains that data is what is regarded as what probably occurred. And some things are known with greater degree of certainty than others. I mean, we can know that Jesus died by crucifixion with a lot greater degree of certainty than that he fed 5,000. Um, I'm going to be talking about some of the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I think that we can know that with a a pretty good degree of certainty, historical certainty. We can know it with greater certainty than we can say that Jesus was born of a virgin. Does that mean I don't believe Jesus was born of a virgin? No, I, I do believe Jesus was born of a virgin, but I have to admit the historical evidence we have for it isn't anywhere close to what we have for the resurrection of Jesus or, um, his death by crucifixion. But I'll I'll be honest with you, if I had to choose between the two, that I'd have more evidence, do I want more evidence for the resurrection or the virgin birth? I'll take resurrection. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, virgin birth is child's play, pun intended, okay? So (laughs) let's look and say, is it rational for a person here in the 21st century to believe something such as a miraculous event, such as a person coming back from the dead? Now, why is Jesus' resurrection important? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. I don't have time to get into this. Um, I've, I've written on the subject, uh, published an article in the Journal for the Study of the Historical Jesus. Um, if you're interested in the big book back there, it's a little over 700 pages that I wrote on the resurrection. It's, um, I've got a whole section in there giving you all the historical evidence that Jesus actually predicted his resurrection. In other words, Let's just say for a moment that we don't presuppose that the Bible is God's word, okay? And we just take it for what anybody would really agree that it is. And at minimum, that it is literature written in the first century that was regarded as authoritative by the early Christians, all right? So if you just look at it that way, we can still take that 
and arrive at the historical conclusion that Jesus very probably predicted his imminent death and subsequent resurrection. All right. So again, I don't have time to get into that evidence. You can read about that elsewhere. Um, But here's the deal. If Jesus actually predicted his death and resurrection, if he did not rise from the dead, what does that make him? A false prophet whom no rational person should follow, right? Why should you give up your Saturday, you know, and come here and just hang out and hear a bunch of us talking about something that's really not true, right? You're wasting your time. Why get up and go to church on a Sunday morning when you could sleep in and go worship someone who isn't really there, right? Um, If Jesus did not rise from the dead, he's a false prophet if he actually predicted his imminent death and resurrection. Um, Here's another thing. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, we've heard that from a couple, we heard it from Daryl, we heard it from Justin a little bit earlier, who who, uh, looked at 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, in that same uh, chapter, chapter 15 says, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ was not raised, your faith is worthless. And actually in the Greek, worthless is the first per, uh, word in that clause, uh, which means uh, Paul's using that for emphasis. Utterly worthless and useless is your faith if Christ has not been raised. Um, in that case, you are still in your sins. And also those who have died in Christ have perished. Um, a year ago, my dad died. A year before that, my mom died. Um, so they were both believers, Christians. I believe they're in heaven. But what Paul is saying, if Christ has not been raised, we're not going to be raised. If we're not going to be raised, we're still in our sins. And those who have died as Christians are forever lost. We're never going to see him again. Um, so, and Paul goes on the same chapter. He says, listen, if I fought wild beasts at Ephesus with no more hopes... No, uh, no more than human hopes. What have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So the basic argument here is, oops, I'm sorry, I went backward there. I'm sorry for the small font, but the basic argument is if Christ was not raised, the dead, you and I, are not going to be raised in the future. If the dead will not be raised, then life is all there is. In that case, the Christian life is not worth living. But Christ has been raised. Therefore, the dead will be raised. Therefore, the Christian life is worth living. This is the importance of Jesus' resurrection. Uh, The truth of Christianity stands or falls on whether this event actually occurred. So, bottom line, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Jesus was a false prophet, and the Christian life is not worth living. So this is a really important topic we're discussing here. Um, so the question would be is, is there any evidence, some real evidence that we can make a historical case, uh, to show that it's probable that Jesus rose from the dead? I think that there is, I'm going to give you a, a, a real simple one here. Um, I'm just taking some of the things from my large book and kind of condensing it down. In fact, I'm going to try to make it so simple in the next few minutes that even a Southern Baptist could understand. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about evidence and historical investigation. Now, um, why these cards here? Uh, just a little aside. I, I, I don't know. Ed, is Ed Komajewski in here? I mentioned that a little bit earlier. I think Dan did. Where is he, Ed? There he is, Ed Komajewski. Now, he was co-author with Dan Wallace 
in the book Reinventing Jesus. And Dan Wallace, who you heard right before lunch, said that Ed Komajewski is the closest thing to the Apostle Paul he's ever, uh, closest person to the, the Apostle Paul he's ever met. That's a huge compliment, isn't it? So uh, a couple years ago, uh, Dan and, and I and a few others were hanging out um, at a conference afterward, and um, I was doing some card tricks in the hotel room. So um, I asked Dan, and I said, well, Dan, who do I remind you of? And, and he said, hmm, well, you do card tricks. Uh, how about Simon the Sorcerer? You know? uh. <laughs> well, anyway, so why these cards here? Well, history, historians... It doesn't matter, like, if you're studying Alexander or Jesus or um, Theseus or Caesar, Cicero, whoever you were talking about, um, when you go to the past, historians are given, like, a hand of cards. And each card represents a source, let's say, an ancient source. So Dan mentioned for Alexander, you got Arian, we've got Plutarch, we've got some others. Um, so, but each of those, like, a, a card in your hand. And again, it doesn't matter who you're studying, every historian is given a hand of cards, these sources to deal with. And we all wish we had more cards. And we wish the cards in our hand were better. But we have to play the, the hand we've been dealt, right? So the question that we're going to look at here is, what kind of hand have we been dealt when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus? Is the hand we've been dealt, I'm not going to say that it is the best hand that you could ever ask for. I'm not going to say that, um, there are, that, it's, that you know, it's the best attested event in the, in the ancient world. It's not. There are some events in the ancient world that are better attested than the resurrection. There are better hands of cards that we could have. But the question is, is there sufficient evidence to come to the conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead? Is this the best explanation? So let's look at the hand we've been dealt, okay? Um, the first card we have, two of them actually, would be Clement of Rome and Polycarp. Now, Clement of Rome um, was probably a disciple of the Apostle Peter, and Polycarp was probably a disciple of the Apostle John. Um, the ancient sources, what they tell us about these guys. Um, now, by the way, how many... I, I've seen a couple pregnant people in here. How many pregnant, pregnant people? There's one back there. Anyone else? No, there's another. Any boys? Any boys? Did you know they're boys yet? Yeah? Well, just, I'm going to mention a couple of these names. So, you know, just remember Polycarp, you know, it's possible for something like that. So Clement of Rome wrote a letter to the church at Corinth that has survived. It's called First Clement. Polycarp wrote a a letter to the church at Philippi, uh, and it's Polycarp's letter to the Philippians. Okay, both of these have survived, um, and they've got some interesting things they talk about. So, for example, Clement of Rome. He says that the apostles were fully assured by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where did Poly, or Clement get that information from? Probably Peter. Um, you got Polycarp, and he says that the one who raised Jesus from the dead will raise us also. Where do you think he got that information? Probably from John, you know? So we've got these two guys that are talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Okay. Let me go back then. You say, why, if that's the case, why did, you got, why did you give these guys, assign them a value of Jack? Why a Jack? Well, because I think we, you know, an eyewitness would be, let's say, a king. 
You know, you, it'd be great to have kings. So why are these jacks? Um, they knew, they probably knew the eyewitnesses. Yep. So why aren't they like just one removed, like maybe queens? Why aren't they queens? Well, because they're writing uh, decades after the event. So the general uh, dating that they give to Clement is between 90 and 95. There are a number of scholars, in fact, a growing number of scholars, uh, and not just conservative scholars. Um, Clayton Jefford of the Jesus Seminar uh, assigns uh, first Clement in early dating in the late 60s. And there's some good reasons for it. Uh, like, for example, First Clement talks about sacrifices going on in the temple in the present tense. Well, the temple was destroyed in 70, so that would place it before 70, wouldn't it? So there are some good reasons for placing First Clement early. But as it stands, the majority of scholars place it 90 to 95. So that's like 60 years after Jesus, right? And Polycarp, let's say, he's probably writing you know, maybe around the year 120. So now we're talking about 90 years after Jesus. So even though these guys knew uh, the, the apostles, the kings, um, they're writing, you know, pretty a long time after the event. So I didn't want to quite give them queens. We'll make them jacks, okay? But jacks pretty good. I, I don't mind getting jacks when I'm playing cards. Um, all right, so let's look at another. What else we got? We've got Mark, and we've got Luke. And I've got Luke Acts because it's the same author, and I've made them queens. Why? Well, the early tradition uh, tells us that Mark, as Dan was talking about, that Mark got his information from Peter. And the majority of scholars, no matter what you hear from people like Bart Ehrman and some of the other skeptical scholars, um, those who are writing commentaries on Mark, really focusing on this, uh, a majority of scholars um, would say that the early church tradition on Mark getting his information from Peter is correct, and that the traditional authorship of Mark is correct. So in that case, if you know he's getting, just like Clement got his information from Peter, Mark would have got his information from Peter. Um, the majority of scholars today also say that Luke was a traveling companion of Paul, or Actually, and I got this information from Craig Keener. Uh, Craig Keener has just, we'll get volume four, it's coming out any day now, of his massive commentary on Acts, which will end up being over 4,000 pages. I mean, this guy is really a nerd. You know what I mean? Um, now, Craig Keener is, is one of my finest friends, actually. He's a real humble, godly man, and just brilliant. And so, anyway, his... The introductory information material on his commentary on Acts, who wrote it, when it was written, why it was written, you know, all this kind of stuff, the speeches, all this kind of things in Acts, 600 and some pages devoted to that alone, the introductory material. This guy knows Acts. And, and Keener has told me that the majority of scholars uh, today, whether they're conservative, moderate, liberal, atheistic, agnostic, they, the majority of scholars acknowledge that the author of Luke Acts was a traveling companion of Paul and that he knew several of the other eyewitnesses. Now, they don't necessarily come out and say it was Luke. Luke is certainly the best candidate. So, and I think it was Luke, all right? And Daryl, who's written a 
you know, one of, certainly one of the finest, if not the finest, commentary on the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it's two volumes. Two volumes? Yeah, it's two volumes. Massive. It's fantastic commentary on Luke. You heard Daryl a little earlier today. Um, and, you know, he, he talks about the authorship issue in there, and he says Luke, and yeah, I buy Luke too. But I'm just talking about the majority of scholars, they don't rule one way or the other on whether the author was Luke, but they do say he was a, uh, a traveling companion of Paul and knew the other, uh, some of the other eyewitnesses. So in that case, according to the majority of scholars today, these guys knew and got their information from the eyewitnesses. Now, just like Clement and Polycarp, but notice I gave them queens. Why? Because they're writing a lot closer to the events. So they're, they're getting it from the same kind of witnesses, but they're writing closer to the events. So they, they have, um, you know, a little more value to them. All right, let's look at someone else here. Matthew and John. Whoa, why aren't they kings? Wasn't Matthew, church tradition says that he um, was one of the 12. And John, uh, church tradition says John was one of the 12. He was the son of Zebedee, you know, one of Jesus' three closest. So, Mike, why didn't you make them kings? Um, well, I'll just be honest with you. I, I think John should be a king. Uh, I personally take uh, the traditional authorship of John. I'm not so sure about Matthew, but I, what I'm trying to do here is to, to not allow my bias to get involved in this. And I want to just give you, based on maybe where scholarship is, including agnostic and atheistic and Jewish and liberal scholarship, um, so that you know where the whole, you know, thousands of New Testament scholars where they stand on this thing. And I don't want to overstate my case. All right. I'd rather understate it. And then if you still think it's a decent case, it's like that makes it stronger, doesn't it? If I'm not pushing the evidence, uh, pushing my argument more than the evidence can actually bear, you know, I, I just want to be fair here. So here's the deal. Scholars do disagree on the authorship of these two gospels far more than the than the others. Um, and there's different reasons I can't get into that. I, I do think that John wrote John, but even some evangelicals disagree. Uh, ben Witherington thinks Lazarus wrote it. I think he actually has a decent argument for it, one that I'd actually be persuaded by, if not for the fact that the unanimous testimony of the early church is that John wrote it. And I think that that carries a whole lot of weight to it. Um, so um, Richard Bauckham, uh, another conservative New Testament scholar, he doesn't think John wrote it. He th thinks it was another uh, John, John the Elder, who would be like a minor disciple. Um, and so there's a number of, you know, of different explanations. Most scholars do, however, acknowledge that whoever is behind John's gospel, there was an eyewitness behind it, even if that eyewitness wasn't responsible for the final product that we're reading today. It's a lot to get into, but that's why I rate John a 10. He's not a king. I personally think he is, but I, if, you know, if he's getting the information from the eyewitnesses, I mean, we could almost even put him as a queen or a jack, but I just don't want to push it more than I can uh, or should, and so I just give it a 10. Matthew's a little more difficult, and here's why. Um, Papias, who was mentioned in one of the earlier... Um, I think it was Dan's uh, lecture, uh, that Papias is the first one to mention um, about Mark writing 
the Gospel of Mark, and he mentions Matthew. But he says that Matthew was originally written in the Hebrew dialect. That could mean Hebrew or Aramaic. But even as, and I've talked to Dan Wallace about this, Dan, who knows Greek just about better than anyone I know of, um, says that Matthew is not translation Greek. So, and we don't have any, any, anything at all that would suggest that Matthew was originally written in Aramaic or Hebrew. What we do have is in Greek, and it's not translation Greek. It doesn't seem like it's been translated from another language. And even other conservative scholars like D.A. Carson and Douglas Moo, Doug Moo at Wheaton, Carson at Trinity, say it's not translation Greek. So even you have evangelical conservative New Testament scholars saying, ah, don't know about this. And even Carson and Moo in their New Testament intro says they think Papias got it wrong on this. Well, I'm not sure I'm willing to go that far that he got it wrong, but I'm not, I, I really don't know what's going on here. Um, could it be that Matthew wrote a smaller gospel, a shorter gospel in Hebrew or Aramaic, and that portion got translated into Greek later on? Um, perhaps it was even the Q source that's been mentioned, or maybe it was another, maybe it was the special M material, and then they combined that with Mark. Um, or could it be that Matthew's just behind a lot of the, the gospel that we're reading about Matthew today, or he was a primary source for a portion of it. We just don't know. It's a really difficult question, and it's one that many scholars just have problems, difficulty answering. So that's why I gave it a nine. But the uniform testimony of the early church is that Matthew had something to do with this gospel. So I do think that there's some eyewitness testimony behind it, and even though I wouldn't rate its and by the way, Matthew was revered more than any other gospel in the early church. So there is some significant value behind this gospel. Um, you know, we're removed from the first century by 2,000 years. And you might, some of us will remember this. Some of you are, are so young, you won't remember this. But I remember when I was a kid, you get these walkie-talkies. And, you know, I'd go outside the house and walk down the street a little bit, and I'd have my sister have the other one. Well, the further you got away, some static would get in there, right? And it became more difficult to hear what the other person was saying. Well, a lot of times it's that way in history when you study the distant past. The more distance there is that's put between us and antiquity, there's this noise that gets in the way that sometimes makes it difficult for us to understand what they were saying and how they understood things. What we do see clearly, though, is that the, under, the early church understood that Matthew had a part. The apostle Matthew, one of the twelve, had a part to play in this first gospel that appears in our New Testaments, and that they valued it greatly. And so I think we should, too, even as a historical source. So, we have two jacks, two queens, queens, a nine and a ten. I want to introduce us to one more card. And that is Paul. And he's our ace. Now, why is Paul an ace, you say? Well, there's some really good reason here. Um, as, uh, was it Daryl or Justin? I think it was Justin. Um, that he was talking about Paul a little bit earlier today. And given us some background there. And so Paul was, by his own admission, he was a persecutor of the church, right? He 
um, arrested Christians. He had them beaten. He imprisoned. He consented to their executions for being Christians. And then all of a sudden he became one because he was convinced that he had this experience that he believed was the risen Jesus who had appeared to him. And it radically transformed his life from being a persecutor of the church to one of its most able defenders. And Paul is a very early source. Um, Galatians is uh, a letter that uh, nobody uh, contends uh, that, that someone other than Paul wrote it. Even the most skeptical of New Testament scholars say that Paul wrote Galatians. And here's what Paul says in Galatians. I've I got a page of the Greek text here. But in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, talks about the gospel that he had preached to the nations or the Gentiles, okay? And what he said was that after he was converted, 14 years later, he goes up to Jerusalem and he runs this gospel that he'd been preaching to the Gentiles. He ran it past the Jerusalem apostles. He calls them the pillars of the church and he names them Peter, James, and John. How'd you like to be in the room with Peter, James, John, and Paul, the Fab Four? Like to be a fly on the wall there? Hey, Paul, what do you mean about predestination and election and when you wrote that letter to the Romans? Wouldn't it be kind of cool to just ask them questions? Peter, can you tell us uh, about Jesus? Hey, James, why didn't you believe? I mean, really, if Jesus had been born of a virgin, I mean, you had to hear the story from your mom and dad. Why didn't you and your brothers believe? What's the deal with that? And I mean, I, there's questions I'd love to ask these guys. Um, so Paul gets with them, and he runs the gospel past them that he'd been preaching to ensure, Paul says, that he'd not been working in vain all these years. And he says, they added nothing to my message. They just extended to us the right hand of fellowship. In other words, fist bump, Paul. Good job, brother. Keep up the good work. So according to Paul, he goes up to them, runs his gospel message past them, and they verify, they certify that he's preaching what they're preaching. That's pretty good stuff. Now, of course, if we're going to be honest historians, we've got to ask ourselves and say, how do we know Paul's telling the truth? Is it possible that Paul made up that story or exaggerated and lied in order to, you know, so that he could, what he said would be regarded as uh, having greater authority than it should have had? We got to look at that possibility, right? So when we look at that, it's interesting to go back to the writings of Polycarp, the guy who, who knew the Apostle John. And Polycarp says that Paul accurately and reliably taught the message of truth. He also, Polycarp quotes from Paul's letters twice and refers to them as parts of the sacred scriptures. Clement, I don't have the verse, I think it's uh, 1 Clement 5 either 1 Clement 5 or 1 Clement 42. And he places Paul on par with his mentor, Peter, and refers to Paul as the blessed Paul. Now, these aren't the kinds of things you say about Paul if he was a heretic and teaching things different than what Peter and John had been teaching, the mentors of Clement and Polycarp. These are precisely the kinds of things you'd say about Paul if he had been te- if what he had been preaching the gospel message was exactly what the Jerusalem apostles were preaching right so wouldn't it be great if we just had some kind let's say 
Wouldn't it be awesome if some archaeologists were digging around and they found a document and Paul comes out and says, hey, um, here's the gospel that I preached. Wouldn't that be awesome? Because at that point, we would know that we are getting the exact message that the Jerusalem apostles were preaching. Even if the gospels then had no tie whatsoever to the, uh, the apostles, if we just had some, if archaeologists could un- uncover some kind of a, a, a manuscript, or let's say Dan Wallace is over in Greece and he's getting through all these Greek manuscripts and he finds a lost one and it says, I, Paul, here's the gospel message that I preach. That would be historical gold, wouldn't it? Historical platinum. It'd be amazing. Well, guess what? We've got it. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he opens up in verse 1 and he says, I want to remind you of the gospel message I preached to you. So what we're about to get here is what the Jerusalem apostles were preaching. This is something that Paul said that he ran by the Jerusalem apostles. They fist bumped on it. Good job, Paul. You're preaching what we're preaching. This is the same message that later on, after Paul's death, that Clement and Polycarp could say such good things about Paul, and Polycarp could even go and say, Paul accurately and reliably taught the message of truth. What we are about to get here in 1 Corinthians 15 is the voice of the Jerusalem apostles on the resurrection of Jesus. This is awesome stuff. This is the kind of stuff historians drool over. All right, and here's what it says. Started in verse 3, Paul says, I delivered to you what I also received. And these were two technical terms for the imparting of oral tradition. We've already talked about oral tradition today, so I'm not going to get into that. But they had, you know, they had these ways and delivered and received. He's getting oral tradition, giving it to them that he got. Now, when did he give this to them? Most scholars think that he set up this church in Corinth um, in the year 50 or 50, probably 50, 51, uh, the first Baptist church of Corinth. So if he's given it to them in 50 or 51, then that means he's getting it before that, right? And we don't know exactly when he got it before that, but it's got to be prior to 50. And he would have, in this formalized creedal format, okay, or of oral tradition. And of course, he would have known, as Daryl talked about, the earliness of this message. He would, have got, he would have known the message a lot earlier than that because why would he persecute the Christians unless he knew their message, right? <laughs> he had to know their message to think that, hey, this is heresy. This is damaging to Judaism. I need to persecute them. So he would have known the message way, way, way back. And like Daryl said, we're just about on top of the events themselves. But getting this, this oral tradition, we know is prior to 50. And that is less than 20 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. And it's coming from the Jerusalem apostles. And here's what this oral tradition says. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared. Now, I left it like this, even in small font, because I wanted you to see what it looked like. Do you notice a pattern here? Long, short, long, short. That's called parallelism. That helped them to memorize things. All right, so again, this is oral tradition. And then Paul lists 
uh, six post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to Peter, to the 12, to more than 500, to James, to all the apostles. And then Paul adds his own name to the list. Three of those appearances are um, group appearances. And we'll get into that in just a moment. Paul ends up saying, whether I or they, in other words, the other apostles, this is what we preached and this is what you believed. Here's another thing. When Paul says the word preached there, he doesn't use the same word as he does in, in um, uh, verse 1. In verse 1, I, I want to remind you the gospel message that I preached to you. He uses euangelizmai uh, there. Here, he uses keruso, and it means the formal public proclamation. So all this goes to showing this is oral tradition that is being given there. And there he talks about the death, burial, resurrection, and then six post-resurrection appearances. So why is Paul an ace? He's hostile at the time of his conversion. He's an early source. He claims to be an eyewitness of the risen Jesus. He knew Jesus' disciples, and he certified that he's preaching the same gospel as they were preaching. It doesn't get any better than this. Now, maybe you'd say, well, we could get better than this. What if we had a non-Christian who actually said, I was an eyewitness of the risen Jesus, and he remained a non-Christian? We wouldn't think that that was a better source. We would think such a person was a moron to have seen the risen Jesus and still not be a Christian. And in all reality, we would say a Christian invented that text because you couldn't see the risen Jesus and remain a non-Christian, right? So really, it doesn't get any better than Paul. So let's just look at our hand of cards here. And you can see, could our hand be better? Yeah, it could be better. It could be all aces, couldn't it? We got a pretty good hand we're dealing with, don't we? That's a really good hand of cards we've got. Really good hand of cards. Now, what do we do with this? I think there's at least two facts. And I get into uh, three facts that we can know with virtual certainty, historical certainty, in my big book, I, I talk about that. But um, just two facts we can get out of this. Jesus' disciples taught he was raised from the dead and appeared to individuals, groups, friends, and foes alike. And Jesus' disciples intended for us to interpret the resurrection as an actual event. Because Paul said, look, if Christ was not raised, your faith is worthless. Party today, for tomorrow we die, right? So if they didn't mean to in- communicate that Jesus' resurrection was a real event, Why are they saying things like that, right? All right, so let's look at just a few alternatives in our last five minutes. What about the legend myth that developed, saying that resurrection was a legend or myth that developed over time, that the original apostles didn't claim that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, we've seen that that's not the case because we can trace this back to the Jerusalem apostles themselves. We got Paul, and we get back with this early oral tradition that goes back to the Jerusalem apostles. What about deceit? Disciples lied about this. Well, hardly anyone goes with this anymore, that they lied about it. I mean, it's been decades since a scholar even considered that possibility. Um, I could show you 11 ancient sources where all of these disciples were willing to suffer and willing to die. We can't establish that all of them died as martyrs. I know that there's stuff going around saying, you know, this happened to this person, this happened to this person. Those may be true, but some of those are late sources. What we can establish with uh, historical certainty is at least Peter, Paul, and James, the brother of Jesus, died as martyrs. And we can establish that all of them suffered continuously for their gospel proclamation and that they were willing to die for their belief. What does that show? It shows that they sincerely believed what they were saying was true. Liars make poor martyrs. 
So the disciples are not only proclaiming Jesus rose, they actually believed it. I don't know of any recent scholars within, again, several decades, maybe 50 years or more, that have posited that the disciples lied about this. Hallucinations, we look at this final one, there are others. Hallucinations is the most popular alternate hypothesis today in the eyes of skeptical scholars. Sometimes they call them visions, but they really mean uh, hallucinations by this. All right, problems with the the hallucination hypothesis. Um, A lot of work has been done on hallucinations uh, by mental health professionals over the last century or so. And what they have found is that the group most likely to experience a hallucination are senior adults bereaving the loss of a loved one. Roughly, in, in several cases... 50% 50% of senior adults bereaving the loss of a loved one experience a hallucination of some sort. Of all the senior adults bereaving the loss of a loved one, only 7% of them experience a visual hallucination. 7%. So the problem is, the kind of hallucinations that the disciples would have been experiencing would have been visual. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 12, right? 100%. So the percentage of percipients is too high because it says he appeared to the 12. He appeared to all the apostles. It's too high. 100% is too high. Moreover, group hallucinations, very unlikely, if not impossible. I wish I had time to get into this, but hallucinations are like dreams. They're private occurrences in the mind of an individual. They're not contagious. You, you can't participate in another person's dream, can you? Like, I can't wake up my wife in the middle of the night and say, honey, I'm having this dream. I'm in Hawaii. Go back to sleep. Join me in my dream, and let's have a free vacation. <laughs> can't do that, right? Why? Because it's a mental experience. It has no external reality. It's the same thing with a hallucination. You cannot participate in another person's hallucination. I've talked to a number of Navy SEALs. Uh, probably 80% of them experienced hallucinations, visual hallucinations, when they were during Hell Week due to sleep deprivation. Um, they told me their stories. It, they're really interesting of the hallucination. They saw an octopus come out of the water and, and wave at him. Another saw a train come across the water uh, headed at him. Another one said he didn't see any, but he remembered this one guy in the raft just swinging his paddle. And he said, what are you doing? I'm trying to hit these dolphins that are jumping over the raft, you know. Did, did you see it? No. Did anyone else? No, they were having their own hallucinations, you know. So you don't experience the same hallucination even if you're in the same frame of mind. But we got th- at least three group appearances. He appeared to the 12, to more than 500, and to all the apostles. All right. And then finally, Paul. Paul wasn't grieving Jesus' death. Paul was glad he was dead. And he was trying to destroy the Christian church. He hated Jesus. Jesus would have been the last person in the world Paul would have expected to see. He's not in a frame of mind for hallucination. So the hallucinations hypothesis is terrible. None of these can adequately explain the data that we have, the early data, that Jesus' disciples had experiences in individual and in group settings in which they believed Jesus had been raised from the dead and had appeared to them, and that they really believed that this had happened, okay? The only thing that really explains it adequately is that Jesus was actually raised from the dead. Um, And these are pretty much indisputable facts like this. The only way that you can get around it is to say God doesn't act in the world or God doesn't exist, but you're going to have to disprove God. You might object to the resurrection on philosophical or theological grounds, but you can't do so on historical grounds. Um, For more information, you can visit my website, risenjesus.com. 
Um, and you can even see a number of debates in which I participated. And you can see that this stuff I've just given you, it, it stands up to, to critical scrutiny. God bless you guys.